Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond blog, Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and a special welcome to the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. Tonight's show, Finding Samuel Lowe, is a remarkable journey about one woman's path to self-discovery. It is a story about love and devotion that transcends time and race and a beautiful reflection of the power of family and the interconnectedness of our world. Paula Williams Madison is chairman and CEO of Madison Media Management, LLC, and this is a Los Angeles-based media consultancy company with global reach. She uh, has been honored by the Asian organizations as well, having been recognized in 2014 as one of the outstanding 50 Asian Americans in business, and in 2015, she was honored by the East-West Players and AARP with their Visionary Award and by the Chinese American Museum in Los Angeles with their History Maker Award. A native of Harlem, Madison and her husband Roosevelt reside in Los Angeles. So let me give a warm welcome to Paula Williams Madison to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Paula, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Bernice, for having me. I'm happy to be with you and your listeners. Well, thank you so much, and I have to tell you, Finding Samuel Lowe is a fascinating book, a fascinating memoir. And so I want you to just kind of set everyone up by telling us, why did you begin the search for Samuel Lowe? Well, uh, you know, I grew up in Harlem with two older brothers. Uh, My father lived maybe 15, 20 miles away in Queens, and we lived with our mother in Harlem. And 
we my 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 two older brothers and I we are African American, we are Jamaican American, we look black. Our mother was a mixed race. Her father was Chinese, her mother was African Jamaican and she looked more Chinese than she did black. And mm-hmm. so as an as a young child I realized that what my mother emphasized to us from birth almost is that nothing's more important than family. Nobody can come between family. You know, you you have to stick together. You have to be loyal to and take care of family and all that was drilled into us. And yet, growing up where we grew up, we didn't have any family members. My mother didn't have any family members. And so it seemed to be so ironic that on the one hand, she's emphasizing this, and on the other hand, she's not. But what really did happen was, even as a little girl, I knew that my mother was not a happy person. She, I don't recall her ever really being happy. Mm-hmm. And she always seemed so melancholy. So when I was small, in the, in the, in the very simple yet straightforward and um, logical way that sometimes, you know, little kids can, can point out things to you. As a little kid, I'd made up my mind that the reason why my mother was sad was because she didn't have her family. And I pledged mm-hmm. when I was a uh, six years old, that I was going to find them. So that stayed with me for the rest of my life. Wow, what a wonderful pledge, too, for something like that at six years old to stick with you. Now, yeah. I know that you said your your mother was from Jamaica, but your mother was right. also ch- Chinese. So tell yeah. us about your very beginnings as far as your knowledge of your family in Jamaica. Well, um, both of my parents were from Jamaica. My father was was African Jamaican. He was a black Jamaican. And my mother, as I said, was mixed race. And they both came over to the United States in 1945. But my mother came first um, holding a British passport because Jamaica was a a British territory, a British colony back then. So she was holding a, a, a British passport, but she was listed as Chinese racially. Mm-hmm. So that meant that um, my mother came here to the United States in ways that a lot of people from Jamaica um, didn't have the freedom to come as black people. They, they, she, she came uh, and came with a visa. My father, who came from a family that was financially more secure than my mother's was, and he had more of an education than my mother did, but it was my father who came to the United States illegally as a stowaway. He he was on a uh, ship that left Kingston Harbor, came to New York City, and he came with the express purpose of finding my mother, with whom he had had a relationship in Jamaica. But she wanted out of Jamaica. She wanted to get to the United States. And so she flew to Miami and then took a train to New York. My father took a ship illegally to New York and got off that ship. I knew about Jamaica from both of my parents. I knew more about my father's family because my father had more of a family. I knew very little about my mother's family. In fact, the only thing that we ever really knew was that she didn't have a relationship with her mother because it was, in fact, her mother who separated her from her father. Um, Her mother took her away from her father when she was three years old when he announced that his family had sent, sight unseen, a bride for him to marry from China, a Chinese woman. 
and 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 my grandmother must have been incensed at that because she pledged that she would never let him uh see his daughter again. He had asked to have my mother his his daughter so that he could raise her with his Chinese wife and so once my grandmother um said absolutely not in in whatever language she, whatever faulty language she used she then um was clear that she she didn't want my my mother she just didn't want her father to have her so she deposited my mother with her grandmother and her grandmother um really was very unkind and det- and detested my mother throughout her life so my mother's growing up in Jamaica was not a happy growing up and right. and so what i knew about Jamaica was that you know it's it's an it was an island from where some very industrious and and strong-willed people came from um but but we as children we had never gone to Jamaica unlike um some of the children who who were the children of of Jamaican immigrants uh, we lived in Harlem there weren't very many there were, in fact there were none who lived in our neighborhood not any mm-hmm. Jamaicans um most of the people in our neighborhood came from down south so we were separated in that way we were um, separated in a variety of ways, including with three little black kids who looked like three little black kids until our mother would come outside to call us in for dinner, and then it'd be like, who, who, who's that? Who's that lady? What, who is that? Is she Chinese? And it just would create um, what you might imagine is is a lot of opportunities for for questions. And sometimes the questions were were fine questions, and you know you'd answer them very civilly. And sometimes the questions were posed in ways that, that for me at least, and I answered them with my fists. So, um, what we knew about Jamaica was that it was an island. It's where our family our family came from, and it seemed to be a place that was so far away because we we just never got there. Mhm, mhm. Now we we have comments coming out of the chat room just so that you can know they are talking back to you actually. Okay. Uh so uh one of the the comments said no wonder your mother was so sad because she wasn't treated kindly by her grandmother or her mother. And uh, just empty heart. And so, you know, they said that you also had, uh, there were also opportunities for bullying, you and your brothers uh, in your community. So uh, this is just how they're responding to what you're saying. Well, you know, interestingly, there there would have been opportunities for bullying, but but we didn't handle that well, meaning that, meaning that, um, I don't recall ever being successfully bullied except for in one instance, and then the tables kind of got turned. And that's because my mother did understand. She she, she, she absolutely understood that um, we were vulnerable. We, we, we could have been very vulnerable, but, but my mother's um, entire... Um, focus was on making sure that not only that we were that not only that were we a strong together family, but that as individuals we could stand on our own two feet. So, so what do I mean by that? I don't know that that it's 
I would have said this to my daughter growing up the way my daughter did and economically where my daughter grew up, but for my mother's daughter, that being me, my mother told me as a, as a little girl, if you get into a fight with somebody, don't walk away until they can't get up. Now, some, I've seen some people literally gasp like, oh, your mother said that? Well, yeah, because we lived in a neighborhood where it was significantly high crime. Um, people tend to think of Harlem as a place where there were lots of drugs and things like that. Well, the reality about my Harlem growing up as a child is that my family was the only family that I knew of that would have fallen into the category of a broken home. Everybody else's parents lived together in in the apartment. My, My father lived in Queens. We lived in Harlem. And so my mother taught us to defend ourselves. So this one anecdote I do have is one day I was walking with a girl, maybe I was about nine years old, and I was walking with a friend. And as we were walking past this boy, uh, he was standing on his stoop. He just spit out. He just spit, and he and he spit on me. And I was beyond mortified. I I could not believe that somebody would do this. And plus, I was kind of, you know kind of a clean freak. So I I was I was stammering, mad. I wanted to beat him up, but this guy was three years older than me. He probably weighed about 35 pounds more than I did. I was real stick, real thin when I was a little girl. So I mm-hmm. went home. I went home, and I'm walking in, and I'm sobbing, and I told my mother what happened. And she said, she said, well, what did you do? And I thought she meant, what did I do to provoke him? I said, mm-hmm. I didn't do anything. And she said, no. You, you're telling me he spit on you. And I was like, yeah, I didn't do anything. She said, and after he spit on you, what did you do? I said, well, I came home. And my mother slapped me in the face. She wow. slapped me in the face, and she said to me, get out. And don't you come back until you tell me that you have beaten the hell out of that kid. And I was wow. like, mommy, he's bigger than me. She said, get out now. Don't you dare come back to me telling me that somebody spit on you and he's still standing there. So behind my mother, right, standing behind my my mother were my two brothers. They were motioning to me behind her, go ahead and go outside. Like they're waving me, like go ahead. And I knew that that meant they were going to back me up. We lived on a ground floor apartment in a tenement. And in those buildings, you know, you had fire escapes. And if you lived on the ground floor, there was a ladder attached to your fire escape that you could lower or raise in, in case of a fire. The whole building could get out by, by exiting windows and then going down the fire escapes. So my brothers and I, we had perfected how to lower the ladder, and we frequently scrambled down the fire escape and outside. So they're motioning to me, go ahead, go ahead. And I turned around and walked out. My brothers went down the fire escape. They ran through the alley. They met me on the sidewalk, and it was like, come on. So the three of us are marching together, and we go around the corner and find this kid, Lionel, who foolishly is still standing on the stoop. And my brothers ran up to him. You spit on my sister? And, like, you know, they're pushing their chest in his face. You spit on my sister? He's like, yeah, but, I, I you know, I was just joking. He was scared. He said, well, you're going to stand here, and you're going to stand here, and you're not going to move, and she's going to beat the out of you. And he stood. I punched this kid. I I wailed on him. I I kicked at him. I Everything I could think of to do to him, I did until my my hands were red from just being sore from hitting him so much. And when I could barely do anything more, my brother said, okay, 
come on. And, they, and of course, it was, you touch my sister again, I'm going to kill you. Oh, wow. And the, and the kid is cowering. He's he's crying now because he's humiliated and he's hurt. So we went back around the corner to our block. My brothers retraced their steps down the alley, climbed up the ladder, went in the house as though they had been there all along. But this is a small apartment. My mother knew exactly what they'd done. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when I got to the front door and I came inside and she said, well, and I said, I beat him up. And she said, okay. And my mother had already run a bath for me. She said, go get in the tub, take a bath. And when I came out, my dinner was ready. And at that point, my mother was then, of course, soothing and petting me. But I said all that to explain that if I had not done this and if my mother had not forced me to go out and and slay the dragon, that I would have been picked on and bullied for the rest of my time in that neighborhood. As it stood, nobody messed with us. And then the backup we had was our mother, Miss Nell, who everybody for blocks around knew, you don't want to mess with the Williams kids because their mother will kill you. Oh, wow. Okay, so we know what Miss Nell is like, definitely. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there's a question uh, in in the chat room, and it, it's okay. back to your neighborhood. Now, did did you ever encounter any Jamaican children or uh, Jamaican immigrants? Not really. I mean, it, and I don't want to suggest that, that no Jamaicans lived in Harlem because they did. But our neighborhood was sort of up in the area called Sugar Hill. So it was Amsterdam Avenue, 163rd and 164th Street, just at the beginning of Washington Heights. In fact, today they've redrawn the boundaries in New York, and they call my, my block is now part of Washington Heights, as opposed to being the end of Harlem, the northern end of Harlem. So there were... Um, there was one other family in our neighborhood, and Mr. Clark owned the record shop on our block. His, he had two children, a boy and a girl, who for the most part were not allowed to come outside and play. Um, they, they, they were kept largely separate from the rest of the kids in the neighborhood. We played with all the kids in the neighborhood. We were pretty much just like everybody else, and, and that also helps explain why we didn't want to live with our father in Queens, because... As, uh, you know, as a as a matter of of my experience, it was that if you lived in a in a I'll call it a neighborhood that had mixed cultures of black people who were from the South and black people who were from the Caribbean, you sometimes and I'm not going to say all the time, but in my experience, frequently what you found was that the Caribbean children and the and the Southern children really didn't mix very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the Clark kids, they mixed with us a little bit, but not very much because, again, my mother was mixed race, which changed it just a little bit for the Clarks, and also because my mother didn't have a husband, and Mr. and Mrs. Clark were married, and I just think that the dynamics of all of that made it such that they never really became close, close, you know. But Mr. Clark, he had the record shop on our block, and for certain when he, you know, if he if he saw us, he'd say hello, and Mrs. Clark said hello, and they kind of looked out for us, but these were not the people who were necessarily like the play aunt and uncle. It wasn't like that. When we encountered children who were Jamaican, it usually was when my father came to pick us up and took us to Brooklyn or Queens. There we found mm-hmm. whole communities of Jamaicans, 
but not very much in our neighborhood in Harlem. Right. So as you started off, you said at six years old, you made the decision that you were going to find your grandfather. Right. So at what point in your life did you come to the decision it was time for you to do it? Oh, well, when I was 21, I had my first job, and that's when it became solidified in my mind that, oh, so 65 is the age when people retire. I decided that 65, you know, when you're 21, 65 is really old. So I decided that I can't wait until I'm 65. So I started my work career deciding that if 65 is retirement age and my lucky number at the time, you know, everybody's got a lucky number, my lucky number is 7 at the time, so I subtracted 7 from 65 and got 58. I decided I would retire at the age of 58 and I would go looking for them, and that's what I did. Okay. It sounds very simplistic and it sounds kind of crazy, but, you know, I, you know, you sort of have sort of overlying uh, parameters and and things that stay in your mind. It's like okay, I set I set goals for myself, and then I go about achieving them. Right. Well, we have uh, some more questions coming out of the chat. Uh, okay. The first question is, how did you and your siblings view yourselves uh, ethnically? Oh, sure. So we ethnically viewed ourselves as black kids with a Chinese grandfather. Okay. That's it. I mean, it was it was it was that. My mother viewed herself as Jamaican, and when people would say to her, "You know, what are you?" she'd say, "I'm Jamaican." Yeah, but but what are you? So, because my mother grew up in a circumstance where her grandmother, she said on a daily basis, called her "you half Chinese wretch," and my mother was really not loved. So. My mother would describe herself as Jamaican. No, but what mm-hmm. are you? So depending upon the era, that time period, if her children, if the three of us would have been described as Negro, my mother would say, would say I'm Negro. If we would have been described as colored, my mother would say I'm colored. If we were described as black or African American, that's what my mother would say. And I realized later on in life that she was giving us what she hadn't had, which was a tribe. We had our, mm-hmm. we had a unit, we had a tribe, we had people who were the same as us. So we were the same, but maybe not so much the same. But my, to my mother, it didn't matter. She, her her goal in life was to affirm for us our worth, make us understand that we had responsibilities not only to ourselves but to each other and to her, and that um, we are proud people. And we're proud as Jamaicans, we're proud as blacks, we're proud as Chinese. It never really, you know, there are a lot of people in my life who've known me throughout my life who, who until this book came out didn't know that I was mixed with Chinese. And mm-hmm. when, well, how, how come I never knew this? I said, well, I don't know, you tell me. How, how do I bring that up in conversation? Hey, guess what? Why? I mean, I, it, that's foolish. And then, And then I also like to explain... My my way of explaining this is that if I had on a, a T-shirt, a hoodie, and jeans, and you saw me from four blocks away, you you might say, oh, that's a black person. Three blocks away, you might, if you could see more of the shape of my body, you might say, oh, that's a black woman. Two blocks away, you might say, oh, that's Paula. 
And maybe when I got right next to you and we had a conversation, you might learn that I'm also Chinese. Mm-hmm. How would you learn mm-hmm. that? Not necessarily by looking at me, but by engaging me in a discussion. I like to tell people that, you know, in the United States where black people come in all different shades and all kinds of textures to us, that generally speaking, when we find black people who are fair-skinned or who are not this deep, rich, chocolate, beautiful black, when we don't see that, we think we generally the default is that we're mixed with whites. But but that's not my default. My default mm-hmm. isn't that at all. And in fact, when you grow up in a in a culture, in a place, in a time where you know people are mixed with many more things, you actually tend to look past hair and skin color. So if I'm in Jamaica, people look at me in Jamaica and they say, oh, yeah, you, you, they can see that I'm mixed with Chinese. In the United States, they don't see that. Because in the United States, when you see my brown, ginger color, whatever, it's, oh, you're black. Mm-hmm. But see, in, in, in the Caribbean, it's not so um, homogenous. And it's not so homogenous because the black people in the Caribbean on, on a small island, they're mixed with Chinese. They're mixed with, with you know, people from India. They're mixed with Syrians. They're mixed, it, there's a mixture that the communities do, in fact, recognize. And, by the way, everybody calls himself herself Jamaican. Everybody's Jamaican. Yes. It's yes. not I'm Chinese or I'm Chinese. It's I'm Jamaican. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. here... Here, everybody, well, I mean, generally speaking, when you say the word American, generally speaking, people take that to mean white American, Caucasian. When you get to certain times and periods and celebrations and stuff, then you're Irish American, then you're Polish American, then you're German American. But for people who are not Caucasian, there's always some hyphenate. There's always something, you know, you're African American or you're or you're Latino, or you're Hispanic, or you're, uh, you know, Asian American, or you, na- name it. But the the fact is that we are so used to in this country being in, uh, a, um, I guess you know, in a in a silo, in a bucket that describes us as uh, something other than the default. Even right now, if you go and you you sign up at work and you're filling out your papers, and if you don't check a race, you know, when you sign up and you get a new job and you fill out what your ethnicity is, if you don't check a race, it defaults to white. Why is That's that? That's right. Yeah. I mean, why, why, yeah. why is that? And, when, and by the way, when will that change? Because in a minute, in a minute, white will not be the majority in this country anymore. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so people are going to have to come up with different defaults and even those of us in these United States, when we look at each other, we're going to have to be able to see because because the fastest-growing dem- demographic group in the United States for people under the age of 18 is mixed race. And I, and I guess for some people that would be called other, but I don't call it other. It's mixed race. They're mixed race people. Mm-hmm. The fastest-growing mm-hmm. fastest immigrant group right now in the United States is Asian, and the largest number, the largest number of immigrants in this country, are Hispanics or Latinos. So, 
everything is starting to change. I was sitting next to a next to a man on the plane yesterday, Caucasian guy. He starts chatting to me, and I hate to talk to people on planes. I, I wanted to be left alone, but okay. I was feeling like, you know, all right, so we're going to chat. And he's chatting and whatever, and finally we get to a point in the conversation where he says to me, you know, the conversation leads to this, and the guy takes out his, his iPhone and shows me a picture of his grandson who's biracial. Mm-hmm. Right, and I thought to myself, so then, of course, I was imagining to myself, now, did he, would he have done that if I was sitting next to him and I was a white person? And I wasn't offended by it or anything like that because it led to some very rich discussion. But I think what he was saying to me was, what he was getting at to me with me is is that you know you can't always judge a book by its color by its cover and that was a Freudian slip you can't always judge a, a book by its cover and I'm sitting here and I'm six foot three you know German American man and 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 I want to show you a picture of my grandson who who I love to bits and who's just a special little boy and I started laughing and I said well let me show you a picture of my grandson and my grandson is you know mixed with all the stuff I'm mixed with plus his dad is Puerto Rican. So it, it ended up with a just sort of us chuckling and saying, you know, for all this nonsense that's going on during this election era and all of this, in my estimation, is largely a backlash to us having had Obama as president. Thank God he was president. But the backlash is that there's a, there are certain quarters of this country that are feeling very insecure. All those demographic statistics I just shared and we had a black president for two terms. And all kinds of laws are changing having to do with race and gender and equality and all the above is making some people ask for, why can't the United States be the way it used to be? What used, used to be when? When? Because I, I don't want it the way it used to be. <laughs> well, and, and that's a really good question, when. But let's, for, for a minute, begin your search. And you tell us, how did you begin this search? Because sure. it's quite interesting. You're talking about Jamaica. Mm-hmm. You're in Harlem. Mm-hmm. So when did it all start? And how did it begin? Sure. Well, it started in a variety of different ways, but the actual um, catalyst, right, the catalyst that, that made me stop everything else and start looking for them was, I reached 58. I said, okay, it is now time. And because I didn't really have, I mean, my mother had uh, a sister by her mother. So my Aunt Hyacinth was racially black. And they looked nothing alike. They had the same mother. But I never met my Aunt Hyacinth until I was in my 30s. Well, I met her when I was 13, and then I didn't really see her again until I was in my 20s. And then really got to spend time with her really when I was in my 30s. But, you know, we, she was in Jamaica and we were here. So I didn't have people in my on my mother's side who I could ask about her Chinese father. I had very few clues. And so I turned to what seemed to make sense to me. I turned to my father's family and I asked my father's siblings and his cousins who who are who are African Jamaicans. I said, you know, there's this significant number of Chinese Jamaicans in Jamaica. I mean, where did they all come from? Are they from all over China? I mean, can 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 you all help me figure out how I can 
identify where they're from and how I can find my grandfather's people. So my father's first cousin, John Hall, who lives up in Toronto, said, there are a lot of Chinese Jamaicans here in Toronto. Let me ask around. And in no time, he contacted me and said he went to um, his high school reunion. And by the way, the high school is in Jamaica. They're having the reunion in Toronto for because there's so many Jamaicans who live in Toronto. And he was hmm. close to 80 years old. So he's there, and he asked around, you know, my cousin is trying to find da 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 and this is her grandfather's name, Samuel Lowe. And they said, oh, there are Lowe's who live here in Toronto. I don't know if, if they're related, but every four years, the 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 culture of the Chinese peoples who who settled throughout the Caribbean and even the United States, they're called Hakka. So they said the Hakka people have a conference in Toronto every four years. Tell your cousin to come, and I'll bet that she'll meet some Hakka people who can put her in touch with her family. So I did just that. I went, I did some preliminary work speaking to some of the organizers and a, and a filmmaker who, uh, Jeanette Kong, who's a Chinese Jamaican woman, a filmmaker who my cousin saw her documentary in Toronto and said, uh, you probably should talk to this woman. She might be helpful to you too. So I did all that preliminary work. My brothers and I went to the conference, and when we were there, we we met the co-chair of the conference, who was a uh, an academician whose name is Dr. Keith Lowe. And I said, wow, he's got the same surname as my grandfather and my mother. So, of course, I asked him if he knew of them, and he said, no, 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 I, I've never heard of him. And I also met his sister, Barbara, Eccle, Barbara Lowe Eckle, who said to me, oh, well, you're Hakka, and if you ever get to China again, you must go visit this village, which is our ancestral village, she said, her family's ancestral village. And she said the Chinese government turned it into the largest Hakka cultural museum in China. And I thought, wow, these people are really nice, but they're not giving me any clues at all. So after a couple of weeks of gentle harassment from Jeanette and me, Keith Lowe said, um, let me, okay, let me contact my nephew in Hong Kong and ask him to ask the family in mainland China if anyone has heard of Samuel Lowe. So he wrote an email to his nephew. He copied me on the email. And the next day the reply came back. Um, my uncle said Samuel Lowe is his father. And that wow. was it. Wow. Right. Now, now, now it, it sounds very simplistic, but the next thing that did happen was uh, email comes, you know, the, I, like I'm, I'm stunned. I, I, I'm, I'm blown away, right? And then another email comes and says, but my uncle says that he knows all of his father's children and he's never heard of Anel Vera Lowe. And then I wrote, well, my mother was born on this particular date and that she told told me and my brothers that when she was 15, almost 16, that she went off to try to find her father and she went to one of his his stores and she, when she got there his two brothers were there her uncles who she met and they told her that it, this is such a shame because he just months ago left Jamaica for good to return to China he wasn't coming back and they said he's been looking for you the entire you know time he was here and he couldn't find you so that was that that was that 
But it turns out that as I wrote that story, I said that my I gave my mother's birth date. Um, I said that she was almost 16. My uncle, reading this, did the math and calculated that this would have been the year 1933. And what he knew was that his father had returned to China permanently, July 3rd, 1933. I didn't know that. Wow. He knew that. Wow. So, so he put it together in a few seconds, and then the email came back. Um, she's my niece. I want to meet her. And probably about three weeks later, I was in China, me and, so, me and one of my, my friends. So from the time you went, to the conference in Toronto. It's about six How weeks. long did it take to actually connect? Oh, uh, the con- the conference in Toronto ended June thirtieth, and the emails probably occurred. If I looked up the date, I could remember it. But I think the email to my uncle, uh, I think, was uh, June sixteenth, something like that. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. July 16th, something like July 16th. So uh, a couple of weeks went by, and then I was in China August 9th, and I think I met them on the 15th or 17th, something like that. So my, my one of my dearest friends, Marcia Haynes, who also retired from NBC Universal. She and I, uh, you know, we 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 like to hang out in China. There's great food in China. We have a, we can have wonderful clothes made in China, and uh, you know, if you like jazz and, you, and you're not seeing the all black jazz combos here, that's because a lot of them are over in China. So we go over there and listen to music and eat food and whatever. And so we had a trip already planned for for that August, and I said to her, Marcia, I might get a clue back about how to find my family. So are you open to to being, you know, playing it loose? She said, "Yeah, sure. If if whatever. Do you I mean don't worry about it." And so the, and that's exactly what happened. Um probably 3 weeks before we left is when we I you know, when we found each other, when when our when I found my family and we made plans to meet in Shenzhen and we did. And I'd never seen pictures of my grandfather. They never knew of my mother, um, who who had already passed by then. My mother had died in 2006. And um, I took pictures of my mother. I also had gotten um, their my, my aunts and uncles' birth certificates. I got my, my grandfather's marriage certificate and, uh, and the announcement of his marriage to the Chinese wife, Ho Sui Yin. I had all this stuff with me, and when I took it, they were fascinated. Because another another interesting tidbit is that uh, China doesn't have um, um, free free open use of the internet. There are firewalls, so people in China can't get access to everything. Um, and when I went and I took them, I, I gave to them. Um, lots of uh, files of information that I'd gotten on my grandfather about his business, his businesses, where they were, newspaper articles about him when he declared bankruptcy, um, the donations he'd made and the the phil- philanthropy that he'd participated in. I took all this stuff and I gave it to them, and they were they were they were beyond happy. They 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 had no access to such information. So it was a short amount of time, and then. 
my um, the family matriarch, my aunt Adassa, who was one month younger than my mother. They had my my grandfather had uh, women simultaneously. My grandmother and another African Jamaican woman, um, and then and then his Chinese wife. wife. Uh, but um, my mother and 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 my aunt Adassa turned out to have been born one month apart. But when we met. When we met that August, my aunt, who was at that point was almost 94, uh, and she was um, African Jamaican and Chinese, and she squeezed my hand and and said to me in in uh, Hakka, my cousin translated, you know, bring everyone home, bring everyone here to Jamaica. So uh, by December, uh, 20 of us, my mother's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, we got on a flight to uh, Guangzhou, China, Shenzhen, China, and we ultimately were welcomed into the family by 300 of my grandfather's direct descendants. And so today, you know, we're one big happy family. We talk to each other all the time on WeChat. Uh, We email, we text, we video calls. Uh, We go there often. They come here to the United States to hang out with us. We meet in Jamaica. We it's 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 it it is a it is a new life, um, and it's a life. Well, that we have a question. Yes, coming okay. out. All but one question was: Did your aunt Odessa remember anything about Jamaica? Oh yeah, sure. Um, my aunt Odessa, when she left Jamaica, she was nine, and then um, the next three children were were boys. And they were, I think, seven and five and three. And they all remembered Jamaica. The last two, my Aunt Barbara and my Aunt Anita Maria, they were like 14 months and two months, three months when they left. So they didn't remember anything. But um, they all had, they, they, their mother, uh, Ho Sui Yin, who was not Anadasa's mother, but Anadasa, was um, her her father, my grandfather, asked if he could raise her with his Chinese wife, and her mother said yes. So she went to China along with her father, her stepmother, and her siblings. And um, she remembers Jamaica. She remembered Jamaica very vividly. And the younger, the two youngest children, uh, the two youngest girls. While they didn't remember Jamaica, they loved Jamaica. And my Aunt Barbara, um, who today is 87, um, her, she had five children, and uh, two of them ha- have Jamaican citizenship. Uh, they wanted to have, they were born in China. They wanted to have dual citizenship, but China doesn't allow dual citizenship. So they gave up their Chinese citizenship. And they are citizens of Jamaica and um, and the UK. Uh, all of my aunts and uncles love Jamaica. They speak. They spoke fondly of Jamaica, and I think that that love for Jamaica and the fact that in their family, the oldest sister that they knew of, my mother was really the oldest sister, but they didn't know of her. The oldest sister that they knew of um, was. Had a, had had a black mother, so for them, when we showed up, they didn't recoil. They didn't. Oh my God, this couldn't be possible. 
um, Chinese people have been going to Jamaica since 1854. Um, mm-hmm. Chinese men went to cut sugarcane when the British abolished slavery and the Africans were freed and refused to uh, work the plantations anymore. And the British and the um, United States-owned uh, sugar companies, they did the next cheapest thing. They sent for cheap labor from China and India, and they really only wanted men. A few women came, but really as cooks. But the men came to do the back-breaking labor. And from the moment they arrived in China, in, um, sorry, in Jamaica, Cuba, Panama, Trinidad and Tobago, Venezuela, you name it, from the moment they arrived, they began having relations with local women, and mixed-race babies have been born. So, every, so th- this is not a new, you know, this is not a new fact for Chinese people. They've been, Why? particularly the Hakka people, have been aware of the mixed-race uh, descendants that they have. Well, we're going to stop right here, take a quick break, come back, because I want you, when we come back, to tell us about some of the resources that you tapped into to just help you understand more about your grandfather and also there is a question about your aunt Odessa. Did she speak English when you met her? She did not. Okay. Uh, she'd forgotten oh. all of that. Okay, so quick break and we'll be right back. Alexander Bennett, and this episode is sponsored by Write Books That Sell Now, the online course helping you write, publish, and market your story. Start your book journey with the totally free video training at writebooksthatsellnow.com video training series. Okay, Paula, we're back on the air. I hope you can hear me. Paula? Okay, we're going into some some technical issues here. I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but Hello everyone. I hope that you can hear me, Paula. I can. Sure. Okay, wonderful. I don't know what happened. I'm so sorry. We started having some technical issues here. So, everyone, we're back live again. I'm so glad that you all are still on the line. So, Paula, why don't you tell us about some of the resources that were most helpful to you in your search for your Chinese ancestors? Sure. Well, um, one of the things that, of course, you know, where you would start, or at least where I started was, um, I went on to Ancestry.com, and I tried to find as much as I could there. And I found bits of it, but not significant amounts. And then I uh, did use um, FamilySearch.org, uh, which, as you know, is a free website that uh, is run by the Mormon Church, the Church of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. And they have spent uh, a considerable amount of time um, putting many, many um, databases and aggregating them on that website. So when I went there, I was able to also 
um, um, go find information on the um, the National Historic Register. And with all of that, I found the uh, the passenger list of the ship that my grandfather had finally returned to China on. I also found records of other uh, of at least two other trips he'd taken between Jamaica and China. I found the um, the the passenger list that my mother uh, had been on when she took a Pan Am flight from um, from Jamaica to Miami when she immigrated to the United States. Found her citizenship papers, all kinds of, as I mentioned earlier, birth certificates and birth certificates and so forth. And then um, Jeanette Kong, the producer and director of my documentary, she actually uh, went to um, to access uh, the microfiche files of the Jamaican Daily Gleaner, which is the largest newspaper in Jamaica. So we used a lot of uh, different resources like that. And the thing that I don't want to overlook that I that I think that people really have to use a, as, as the first resource is your own family, people in your own family who may have stories, may have information. I I I suggest to people strongly that you find the elders in your family, and 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 it's as simple as using your your phone and shooting video while you're interviewing them. Just let them talk, because, as you might know, for a lot of the elderly, their their long ago memories are much sharper than their yesterday memories. So, there was a point where I was in China and we were sitting with Anadasa, and I and I mentioned something about well, you know, the two shops that you know your father had. She said two shops. My father had seven shops, and I was like, Whoa. wow. Um, so. There's all kinds of ways and means, but one thing that I really want to say, especially to 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 people of the African diaspora, people who who are the descendants of slaves, and that is that so many of us will encounter some very painful stories. There will be stories um, that can be as expected for example as when on when we did our dna search with africanancestry.com uh we learned that uh, on our father's side although my father was a deep 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 rich brown um uh, his markers came up for, for his dna came up for 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 people who are in present day northern europe england and germany it said and i had people say to me wow that's really cool and i'm like really cool well, that would probably be the slave master owner who would have raped the my African female descendant. It's like, oh, um, and I'm not, I'm not blaming anybody for not having reached that conclusion quickly. But what I am saying is that I have encountered folks, black folks, who will say, when I was trying to ask my my auntie or my grandma or my grandpa or whatever. They don't want to talk. There's some things that they just don't want to talk about. Don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. They don't want to talk about it. It's tough. It's hard. It's painful. And I get right. that. And I can say without question that if my parents had been alive when I wrote that book, I am certain there are portions of that book I would not have written, not while they were alive. Certainly. But, but because because 
this story that I'm telling is actually, and I don't mean to sound possessive about it, but it's it's actually my story. It's it's not my mother's story. It's not my grandfather's story. It's not my father's story. It's my story. And these are things that happened to my ancestors and my elders. And in order for me to tell the story and the history of how I came to be, I have to tell parts of what happened in their lives. So when doing this, sensitivity and consideration and respect are very, very important. I also say, however, that it's vital that for those of us who do want to know more about our families, that we're given that opportunity to know more about our families. And, by the way, my family's um, documented ancestry on on the Chinese side, we go back um, 3,000 years to 1006 B.C. So I'm the 151st generation of the Lo clan in my family. And people say, wow. And then I say, yeah, but please remember that the first man and woman on the planet came from Africa. And even if we can't have a documented lineage that says in, you know, in the Qing dynasty or in the in 1457, even though we can't say all that, what we can say is that every human being on this planet is a descendant of Africa. Yes, yes. Now, you're telling us, I mean, about your your lineage and how far back it goes. Was your mother also put on this family tree that you're describing to us? Yes. Well, that's a really good question. So in China, the family tree, it's a legacy book. It's called a Jiapu, J-I-A-P-U. And the Jiapu is the documented history, and, and literate Chinese families kept these records religiously during the Cultural Revolution um, for fear of being identified as as uh, upper class or you know people who were had property, many families destroyed their japus as uh, out of a, a a fear. So, um, but but in any case, they are written primarily from from the perspective of men. They're male focused. You know, the son of so and so, the brother of so and so, the third son of so and so, and that's how these books are written. The women are mentioned parenthetically. The sister, you know, so-and-so, the sister of this great man or the wife of this man. But little is written about the women. More is written about the men. So when I asked if now that they knew that my mother existed, if she could be in the Japu, then, you know, sort of a look like, oh, well, you know, it really is for men, I mean, we, we really don't put women. And then I, I got that look on my face, that look that's like, <laughs> like, oh no, we're not having that. So that was in August. When we got back in December, they had in fact um, edited our family's jokpu, and my mother and her descendants are in it. So we Fantastic. are now, yeah, we're in there. And my uncle Jawu gave us all our Hakka names, so we. We have our Western names with which we were we're known by here, and then when I go to China, um, I actually have people there who call me my Chinese name. It's interesting. Right. When Chinese yes, media writes about me, when Chinese media writes writes about me, they write they they write about me with my Chinese name. Very interesting. Now there's a question coming out of the chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, has your family? 
pushed you to document your African Jamaican side since you now have your Chinese side so well documented? Sure, no need to push. I mean, I tried to document my African Jamaican side long before I was able to document my Chinese side. Um, I I know as far back as my father's father, but I can't find any of his um, documents. And I can go back as far as um, for my mother's mother, I have no information beyond her. And although, uh, as I mentioned, she she my my mother had a sister on Hyacinth, who uh, who had a different father. They have the same mother. Mother, but on Hyacinth didn't know much about these people. And on Hyacinth's son, my first cousin Norman, who lives just outside of Atlanta, he doesn't. He grew up, of course, with his mother and with his grandmother, who was my mother's mother. Um, he said he doesn't know anything about them. That that um, my grandmother Sarah, I mean uh, Alberta Campbell, who was his grandmother, he said she didn't she didn't talk about family. So so. I've looked for and and you know hired um researchers in Jamaica to try to find information I can't get any. So so absolutely I would have uh without question uh devoted time and resource to finding my African Jamaican family too. For me family is family. It's all about family and it as I said it's it's how it's how we got here. But I I had an, an easier time finding the lineage of my Chinese family because, well, you know, they weren't taken from one country to another in chains and shackles, and you know, it, it it's mm-hmm. it's a different it's a different history. It's a different legacy. Right, right. Now, uh, there's another question coming out. Has your story been covered in the Jamaican press? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the Jamaican press has been very interested in the story. Um, it's been in the, a few newspapers. It's been in the Gleaner and the Observer. Um, there have also been um, radio programs about about us and what we've done. Um, on the 160th anniversary of the Chinese of the arrival of the Chinese in Jamaica, our film opened the Jamaica Film Festival. And there was a great deal of um, of excitement around that. I've received the the key to the city of Kingston, Jamaica, and I was also recognized in uh, Saint Anne's Bay, Saint Anne Parish, where my paternal grandfather, John Henry Williams, also known as Jack Williams, where he was born, but he eventually moved to Kingston, and that's the last city that my maternal grandfather. Samuel Lowe, whose real name was Lord Ting Chow, um, and that's where he had his business and where my aunts were born. So I have been welcomed with love and affection and and people so happy to hear a story that, that as you mentioned earlier, is a story that is, talks about a family and a love and it transcends nation's boundaries it transcends time it transcends space it also transcends race i mean it's a it it's a story that 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 is one family that uh while it's one family's experience i think 
it's the experience of many families. I happened to be in a position and blessed and fortunate enough to be able to tell our family's story. But this story could be replicated many times over. Maybe not the same countries uh, and certainly not the same people, but how many of us are out there looking for our families? How many of us are having success finding parts of them? And I think that if I go back to this this statement I was making earlier about the fastest growing demographic in the United States is mixed race. Um, What is it, 20% of all marriages today are mixed race marriages. Um, And then that's the ones that they're counting that, that, you know, result in a marriage license. The the world is getting smaller. And by that, I mean, look at how many Chinese are now in the 54 nations of Africa building roads and lights and and infrastructure and having businesses. Look at how many uh, Africans are, frankly, in China. Um, as traders and and students and business people, uh, it, it, it's it's once you leave your home country and you go out into the world, the chances are very great that you're going to form bonds that can result in family bonds all across the world, and that's what I mean by the world is getting smaller. Um, right. Not only is it getting smaller. But you have actually left a legacy for your daughter, for your grandson, for your nieces and nephews, and it's it's your story, but it's also part of their story. Oh, yeah. And so a question that I have for you, and I don't know of how many people when they start a journey such as yours, would do what you did, and that is you documented in film your search process. I and so tell us about that, and why did you decide to do that? Well, I actually did not decide to do that. Uh, if you see the film, you can tell by, at various points, I look like I am professionally ready to go on camera, and other times I look like, you know, you you let, you let you actually got in front of a camera looking like that? Uh, and that's because I really did not intend to. My family is the largest investor in a television network called the Africa Channel. And my brother is the CEO of the Africa Channel. And it is my brother who insisted that we shoot this, that um, we take a crew along with us, because he said people are going to want to understand how this was done. Now, at the time that we took the camera, lo- the crew along with us, we had not identified where our family was. We hadn't found them. But my my two older brothers and I were we were we were convinced. We knew they knew I was gonna find because I'm that kind of person and I knew I was gonna find them. I was not I was, I'm relentless. So my brother said, We are going to document this and, and I was like, I don't I don't it's I'm gonna be emotionally in turmoil and I don't want cameras on you know I worked in television most of my life I said I don't want cameras on me when 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 that's happening he said deal with it you're just going to have to deal with it we're going to we're going to shoot this and so you know thank god he had the wisdom to be, because um it's it's a it's a moving documentary which by the way you can get on iTunes and Amazon and Vudu but it 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 it, it takes you along on this journey 
and you can see and feel the wonderment, the astonishment, the surprise, the pain, the pathos. I mean, I don't know that I've ever cried as much in my life as I did that year when I was searching for my family. Because, and people who know me as, you know, the consummate corporate, you know, executive, they would say to me, you cry? Well, not often, or I hadn't until all of this happened because it it just, there were so many parts of it that were beautiful, so many parts that were painful. I felt for my mother. I felt for my father. I felt for my grandfather. And what I should say is that in the time that we found them, which was in August of 2012, and we shot the documentary in December of 2012, um, and and I, my brothers and I and the cousins, we've all, we go to, I go to China at least, at least twice a year, sometimes three times a year. But what has resulted in the past 15, 16 months is Anadasa died in January of 2015. And um, my youngest uncle, Uncle Zhao Gong, he died in June of 2015. And Uncle Zhao Wu, who was the family matriarch and who absolutely is the star of, of the film, he's a, he, was, he was just, a, I mean, a, a, words can't explain how how much he's meant um he died in um february of this year so when when i found them my mother had five siblings still alive and now there are two and i'm just so grateful that i uh got the chance to know them and meet them and love them and have them love me back um but that's 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 part of the messaging here for anybody who's thinking about Someday I'm going to. Don't do it someday. I wish I hadn't waited mm-hmm. until I was 58, but quite honestly, had the Internet not existed, had FamilySearch.org not existed, had the National Register's um, passenger list not been uploaded, and they and they had been, all been recently uploaded, I, I can tell you that five years ago I wouldn't have found them. I don't know that, that te- certainly ten years ago I wouldn't have found them. But four years ago, I found them. And and what you're saying, though, is don't wait. I mean, look what happened. You met your family, and now three of your family members are gone. Right. But Absolutely. you were able to, to connect with them. I mean, this is the emotional side of, of genealogy that uh, we – See people posting, I'm doing a happy dance, or I cried today because I found this. But that's sure. a journey that you have documented, you have shared in your memoir, and it gives everyone some encouragement that right. you did it and you went to China. Here we right. are still looking in America, and hopefully we can go to Africa. Right. And find well, I mean, to, to be, uh, a, to be a fair connection. To, to be fair to us, um, you know, I, I the reason why I waited until I retired, and by, by us I mean those of us, you know, we black folks here in the U.S., I waited until I retired because I can't honestly tell you that I would have been able to function at work well, you know, at the level, at my usual, you know, level of, 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 of operating when I was so emotional and when I was up, to all hours of the night, researching documents and talking to people. Um, I knew 
when I was 21 that if I was going to do this, I can't work. I can't report to somebody else. My time has to be my time. My brain has to be my brain. I have to have the resources. So my mother's push to insist that we be independently wealthy uh, well, you know, my mother's a very wise woman, and and a and a and a, lo- a lo- large part of how this was able to happen was because one of the resources I didn't mention was we spent our own money. I mean, we 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 had the money in order to 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 hire people and to travel to China, and 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 all of the above. But it was with intention. We had a purpose early on. You know, we we pledged to each other we're going to get this done. So. You know that helps you make decisions in life. It it would be very difficult. It would have been, I think, almost impossible for me to have undertaken the search I did and get up in the morning and go to work. Because this one, like for for many of us, um, at the point where I tell you that as you start to hear stories about what was done to black people, when you start to hear stories about the land that was taken away from us, or you know, or who was beaten, or who was raped, or whose child was was taken. These are things that don't allow you to brush yourself off and say, "Okay, well, I'll just pick that up tomorrow." You understand? So mm-hmm. it's it, that's why I say to be fair to us, some of us can go this far, and then we can't go any farther because it's too hard. And and I understand that. And for those people who do have the strength to keep pushing through, you know, thank God for them because they're able to serve as the family griot. They're able to serve as the family's historian. They're able to tell stories inside the family and about the family that all the families have questions about. But sometimes when you shine a light on it, it's just too tough to then be strong and go out into the world and battle all the things that we as black people in this country have to battle. It's it's just, it's hard. So I knew myself enough to know that I can't do this and then go to work the next day and be cheesing and grinning in somebody's face. That that just could not happen. So I right. So so you you had the time. You chose the time to do what right. you needed to do, where you could emotionally handle it and then put all your energy into it. Well, now there's a question coming out of the chat. How are the young people in your family facing this new aspect of their family and identity? Oh, they think it's cool. They think it's cool uh, because remember our identity is hasn't changed. It it isn't that you know some some people have asked you, no, so when did you know you were Chinese? Well, I've always known I was. I looked at my mom. I mean, we ate with chopsticks when we you know quietly, privately in our in our in our Harlem apartment. You know you don't. Hey, guess what? I'm eating with chops. It's like, what are you talking about? So, I mean, we we had that identity. We were we were, we're black people who are who are also Chinese people. So so it wasn't a guess what? We're we're Chinese. It, my grandson has known even before he 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 went to China and met them. He knew he was mixed with Chinese. Why? Because we would have told him that when we sit around yeah. and talk about family so the young people are you know they they think it's cool they we took everybody with us to china and well the next question is 
Go ahead. I was saying, what's, what's interesting is that our family in China wanted us to leave the kids there so that they could go to Chinese <laughs> schools, be raised, and speak the language. And, and, my, and my daughter and my nieces, and they were like, oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Well, you know, you're saying that in the very next question in the chat, are they learning Chinese? Well, um, you know, they're, they are not. I have tried to bribe them and say to them, you know, you know, if you guys do junior year abroad when you're in college or go spend a year in China, you know, live with the family. In fact, my one of my young cousins in Jamaica, uh, when we went over for Lunar New Year, the the cousins who live in China there's only there are only two male two, three boys in our family who still have the last name Lo two of them are Chinese and one is Ch- mixed Chinese Jamaican he's a black Jamaican and they asked him to come and live in China because they want him I mean the the, the sense of family and the the, the the esteem in which they hold the males is so high. So in 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 our family's case, I could, I guarantee you, any of the college students, any of the young adults, any of them, if they said they want to go to China, it's like the family in China. Come on, you can live with me. Come on, you can say, not a problem. We'll get you a job. We'll do whatever because they 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 we're family. And and what's amazing particularly for African Americans, is that to them, it's not that they don't see race, but it's not a barrier. It's not a barrier to anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a question. They want to know, do you have a family Facebook page? Um, we have, let me see, do we have a family Facebook? We have a, it's not on Facebook. We absolutely have one. It's on WeChat which is a social media network in China. It's around the world, too, but it's the number one social media network in China. So we do video calls, audio calls. We have a family chat group that has 65 of us in it today. Um, it can grow to as many as you want, to, but but we're communicating with each other all the time. So we post news and happy birthdays and, and you know, when I'm going and when they're going, and it's, we we keep um two days ago was my aunt um Anita Maria's birthday and there were all kinds of pictures in the family chat of her celebrating her birthday um along with a bunch of family members and friends i mean this goes on all the time babies being born uh i had twin cousins born twin boy cousins born about 4 months ago and uh one of my cousins who moved here about a year and a half two years ago she had a baby uh, maybe three months ago, she lives in San Francisco. Is learning English as a second second language. Married a native-born Chinese man who is a, uh, a teacher in San Francisco. And uh, I see her when I go there. Her name is Ping, and we she speaks English slowly, and I don't speak any Cantonese or Mandarin at all. So that's how crazy my life is. I went to Singapore last summer to show my documentary at a university and while there met one of my cousins uh who is Chinese Jamaican Patrick Lowe and his Singaporean born wife and their little boy and we had a great time hanging out and he's got a Jamaican accent born in Jamaica raised in Toronto uh and these are all his his great grandfather is my grandfather's brother wow 
Well, Paula, <laughs> we're close to the end of the show. Okay. And so do you want to share any closing remarks before we close out tonight? Because you have just shared so much with us about your journey, about what it means to be family. And so just give us some parting words sure. before we say good night. Well, when I met you in Salt Lake City, uh, I was really rushing, really rushing to to get to Los Angeles so I could catch that flight to China um, for Lunar New Year. But in fact, uh, it, it was for that, but my, my uncle had just died. And the custom in China is that once Lunar New Year celebrations begin, and they last for three weeks, you can't have anything sad. You can't have any funerals. So I, I, when I was leaving Salt Lake City, I know that some people were very concerned about whether I was going to make it on time. And my husband met me at LAX, took my luggage that I'd had in Salt Lake City, and we switched it out for my luggage for China. I got on the flight. I landed. Uh, and three and a half hours later, I was at my uncle's funeral, which, which I will tell you, one of the biggest gifts that my uncle Jawul gave to us was that he passed at the time he did, meaning that, meaning that at the age of 91, um, he died when there were about 15 of us, <clears throat> excuse me, who had already booked our, our flights, our vacations and all, to China to celebrate Lunar New Year with the family. But what it allowed us to do which was, I believe, a singular experience. It was so amazing. It allowed us to attend our uncle's funeral with about 200 other family members. I don't know. We, we never could have done that because you can't scramble at the last minute and say, oh, I'm, I can't come to work tomorrow. i got to go to China. And to have experienced that amount of, yes, it was sorrow, but it was also great joy and outpouring and love. And the message that I want to share with all the listeners, is really that I don't care what people tell you about race, and I don't care what people tell you about prejudice, and I don't care that people tell you that you should be afraid that you're not going to be accepted. Don't listen. Don't listen to that. Because the amount of joy, regardless of race or nationality, that you feel, that you experience, because we are all blood, we share the same blood. We have common ancestors. And there are some DNA imprints that are just going to follow us no matter where in the world we are. So I, I would just say to people, don't be afraid. Don't be put off. Take a risk. Because the joy that you get, the joy that you get when it all works out, and maybe all of it won't work out, but maybe it will be enough. But it does help tell the story of us as a people and we are a people who transcend that period in time where we were enslaved I don't discount it at all but before we were slaves we were warriors, we were kings, we were queens we were educators we were parents we were family and that's what we have to carry through beautiful wonderful Beautifully said. Thank you. Well, thank you so very much, Paula, for joining us tonight. And everyone, Paula's book is available, Finding Samuel Lowe. And, Paula, they can get it from Amazon.com. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, they can get it on any any online bookseller. 
Uh, they can get it in some bookstores if you want to order it too. And the, and by the way, the documentary, the one that's online, uh, we shot a, a second documentary, which is a bonus feature that's 45 minutes long that shows the Chinese cousins and the black cousins. We're all first cousins and we're roaming around the world tracing our grandfather's steps. And it's it's very different from finding Samuel Lowe. Um, but it is it, it it you can you can only get that one if you uh get finding Samuel Lowe um online. So you can buy that as I said on iTunes and elsewhere. Okay. Well, I want everybody to remember and Paula just shared this with us. Your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Now, I have a few commercials to give to you. One, are you interested in enhancing your skills in African-American genealogical research? Have you heard about the Midwest African-American Genealogy Institute? Well, this is the only institute devoted exclusively to African-American genealogical research strategies, and it is open to everyone. So register today, and everyone, we look forward to seeing you in July at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's the Midwest African-American Genealogy Institute. And you can go to their website, www.maagi.org, the Teaching Institute. So thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is also sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to having all of you join me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Paula. Good night.